Welcome to the DTB podcast for September 2020, volume 58, number nine. My name is David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, DTB editor-in-chief. Thank you once again for joining us for one of our remote podcasts, uh, which we're recording at the beginning of August. We're slightly further spread out than usual. I'm in Chichester. James, where are you? I'm in sunny Newbury. And Letitia, who's uh, doing all the fading and recording, is in Portugal. So um, we'll have to see how far each of us can get for each podcast. Uh, apologies if there are any odd noises in the background, uh, but the Spitfire that's based at Goodwood has been buzzing overhead today. James, any stray noises in your neighbourhood? <laughs> Just the four dogs. If anyone rings the bell, all hell will let loose here, but hopefully not. Okay. So this month, we will give a quick overview of the editorial, uh, talk about one of our select summaries, chat a bit about a review article, and then discuss the case report. So let's start with the editorial that Mike Wilcock has written. James, do you want to say a bit about it? So this month's editorial is regarding the dilemmas in commissioning biological therapies. Now, these are these expensive new therapies which are used for a whole host of conditions from psoriasis to rheumatoid arthritis. And they are responsible for a huge increase in hospital drug costs. And the commissioning itself is the responsibility of whom? Yeah, so this is where it gets a bit complicated because the process is that NICE does a technical appraisal and that determines whether they are considered to be worthwhile to be used on a cost effectiveness basis and once NICE has done that technical appraisal then in effect commissioners have three months to make the funding available for them locally and either the NHS England or CCG do that so that's the sort of process at which they become live but as Mike points out the problem we have is that they may have been cost effective when the technical appraisal was done, but some years later, there may have been some changes to the SPC on how often these drugs are given or the dosage that are given, or it may be that the landscape around the treatment of a particular disorder has changed. And so that cost effectiveness analysis that was done all those years ago is no longer valid. And it may well be that actually we, it needs to be revisited. So that's really what, what he was um, looking at was, you know, how, how can we be sure that drugs that we're now using are actually still cost effective? So if a drug that was licensed for once day usage at the point at which its appraisal was done by NICE is now licensed for twice day, thereby doubling the cost, his argument is what, that, that how do we know that we should be providing that because the original cost effectiveness wouldn't have taken that into account? Exactly. I mean, it may be that the drug is still cost effective. It may be that it isn't, but actually no one's looking. And it, I mean, Mike gives a couple of examples. He gives an example of um, Fedolizumab, which was licensed initially for Crohn's disease in 2015. And when it was licensed, it was based on having an injection every eight weeks. But actually since then, the dose frequency has been increased to four weekly. But as we say, no one knows whether that's still cost effective at that dosage but the SPC now allows that to be used in that way. And the other uh, example he, he uses is, is one of sequential therapy which is really about how clinicians have changed clinical practice so whereas how many different types of biologic are you allowed to have in a kind of attempt to get a response 
Um, is it one, two, three, four? And, and presumably all the cost effective analysis is based on a single drug used at a single point in time, not after other drugs have been tried and failed. Um, precisely. So the law of diminishing returns suggests that if you're using a drug after having already tried four, the chances of it being effective, you know, being the fifth in line is, is very much lower than we'd expect first line, which is when actually obviously the technical appraisal was, was looked at. But the difficulty appears, well, although NICE will revisit things and look at them again if things have significantly changed, I mean, they can't be expected to keep up to date the whole time on every, every nuance of license change. And so is there anything that guides clinicians or commissioning organisations as to what, what they should do? It's, it, it feels as though that it then reverts back to a local decision with all the risks of postcode prescribing. Uh, you're absolutely right. And I think you know, being involved in a medicines optimization committee myself, this sort of thing is far too complicated for the average clinical commissioning group to assess. It really is. So I think you're right. I think it's an example of a process being put in place, which seems actually to be very effective at making sure that drugs are used in a cost effective way. And actually five or so years down the line, we're learning that we need to relook at the whole process and perhaps redesign it so it allows for these sorts of changes. Okay, thank you very much. And also this month, we've got a DTB Select article that we're worth looking at in a bit more detail. It takes the results of a study um, on the use of direct oral anticoagulants in people with AF and looked at changes in renal function. Do you want to say a bit about what they found? Yeah, this, I like this study. This was a um, prospective cohort study done in the States. Um, they looked at patients with atrial fibrillation. They had about six or 7,000 patients in the study um, with atrial fibrillation, and about 83% of them were using a DOAC for anticoagulation, which I think is a sign of the times, isn't it? That's quite a significant proportion now. And it was a two-year study, and they basically looked at renal function over that time. And about uh, 20, 22%, I think, had worsening renal function over that two years. And they defined worsening renal function as um, a decline of more than 20% in the creatinine clearance. What was interesting, this is the bit that I think is really important for us clinically, was that about 3.7% or 154 of those six or so thousand patients had enough decline in their creatinine clearance to warrant a reduction in their DOAC dose but actually only a fifth of those patients actually had that dose changed by their clinician. So basically 154 patients needed a reduction in their dose during that two years, but only 31 actually had it. And what was, I think, very telling was that in that 123 that didn't get the change they should have had, there were five patients who had major complications with bleeds. So it's, it sort of demonstrated to me that this is a real issue for us clinically, that actually a significant proportion of patients do have declining renal function with DOACs, and we have to be very mindful about this when we're prescribing them. And the method they looked at for assessing renal function was creatinine clearance, wasn't it? Based on the Cockroft-Gold equation, not EGFR. Yes, and this is, I think this does confuse a lot of clinicians, I think. Luckily, a lot of the software we now use in primary care does actually prompt us to, to do a true creatinine clearance and actually does it for us as well. So I think 
at least the software is helping us with that. But you're absolutely right. There's often a lot of confusion between EGFR and creatinine clearance. And certainly this picks up the, an issue that uh, we had in an editorial last year uh, when David Erskine wrote about the problems of assessing renal function and using, using DOACs. So question for you in your day-to-day -day clinical practice, what do you do or what have you done? What does the practice do to keep on top of the use of DOACs and people's renal function? Do you know, it, it's a really good question because we've certainly, we were, the, the first thing that we had missed was some DOACs require a change in dose after a certain period of time, and we had missed that. So I think it's a Pixaban where you reduce the dose after six months, and we had not clocked that. So we actually did, did a complete search of all our patients on drugs. This one, we're tending to use the medication reviews that we do every six months. And one of the things that I liked about this study, although I'm not sure what the evidence was, but the authors did suggest that we use the European Heart Rhythm Association's advice on how frequently you should do blood tests on patients with DOACs. And they suggest that you should divide the creatinine clearance by 10 to give you the monthly frequency of blood tests once someone's creatinine clearance is below 60. So in other words, if someone had a creatinine clearance of 30, 30 divided by 10 would be three, so they should have three monthly blood tests. Now I was gonna look at the paper concerned is in the European Heart Journal, and I was gonna have a look at that just to see if they've got any evidence behind that, but it did seem a quite a useful rule of thumb for us to use, and I think we're gonna to have to. I think the difficulty with DOACs, if I'm honest with you, is warfarin we all knew was difficult and everyone was having regular blood tests and you could see when things were going astray and it was actually fine. DOACs was sort of promised as an almost sort of fit and forget, wasn't it? You know, let's just give them the drugs, no need for any more blood tests. Well, it's not that simple. And it's so often the case with new drugs, the pendulum swings back and you discover there are issues that you have to be aware of. And I think this one is one where we're going to have to get much, much more careful with them. You know, I think we're going to have to be as careful with DOACs as we are with some disease modifying anti-rheumatic drugs. And maybe the monitoring isn't as onerous as it can be for some people who are taking warfarin and levels change quite rapidly but on the other hand it is might be too easy to think you don't need to monitor these and people slip through the net so there is certainly a more of a learning curve around making sure that people are picked up regularly definitely and i think i read there was a quite an interesting scandinavian study done some years ago that looked at the intervals between blood tests in patients taking warfarin and actually for many patients the interval is around eight to twelve weeks so when we're getting to low creatinine clearances you can see that actually DOACs are not necessarily offering any less blood tests than you would have perhaps had if you were taking warfarin. Yes quite that is a good point okay thank you very much uh, so move on to our main article uh, and this is one on the issue of antidepressants and epilepsy and in particular whether antidepressants worsen seizures so donald craig and curtis osborne have written this for us um key issues for you i think the key issue for me was this is quite complicated and it was a really good article because i thought it's quite a simple question you know do they or don't they increase the risk of seizures and it was really interesting that actually i think there are three elements to it one do antidepressants themselves increase the risk of seizures? Well, we know that in overdose, they certainly do. And we also know from FDA evidence in clinical trials that actually seizure incidence does seem to be 
increased when patients taking antidepressants. But what was also fascinating is that um, there was a UK adult primary care cohort study of 240,000 people that the authors discuss where they showed that actually this was a, an observational study of patients with depression and they found that over five years follow-up the incidence of seizures in patients on antidepressants did seem to be raised at about 0.37 percent but actually in the observation group these are patients who weren't taking an antidepressant but were depressed the incident was 0.35 percent so only 0.02 percent difference so there was a question is does depression itself actually increase your risk of seizures and the third and sort of final issue in all this complexity was that of course anti-epileptic medication metabolism and antidepressant medication metabolism can interact and interfere and that in itself then can have an impact on seizure frequency because of it so it was actually quite an interesting mix of different issues that we need to be aware of when, when prescribing for patients with epilepsy. And just getting back to that point about the question of whether depression is associated with higher rates of seizures, there was also, I think, it came out of maybe the FDA data that suggested that even in those trials, the placebo arm, there was a higher rate of seizures in people taking placebo in those antidepressant trials as well, which, which kind of follows on from what you're saying about about the observational rate in in people with with depression so something very strange going on with, and which we don't don't fully understand and as you say this is a rather simple question but with a very complicated set of answers and we're still not quite clear um what the what the obvious drug to use is yes i mean they do mention i mean it's quite interesting i think they review what NICE suggests we should be using. And interesting enough, in, their, in NICE's uh, guidelines on the management of depression, they don't even mention the seizure risk associated with them. But they advise to telepram or sertraline in patients with multiple comorbidities. And certainly those two drugs seem to have less impact on other anti-epileptic medication itself. So I think, I think probably citalopram or sertraline as first line in patients with epilepsy is a sensible first you know first approach um, but it then gets very complicated and I think this is one of those articles that I'm going to have to keep close to me because it's one of those things where I'm going to have to relook at it when I'm faced with a situation to remind myself what the best option is. And the drug which seems to come out as the one that's most problematic and although it's not licensed in the UK for depression it is obviously used for other reasons was bupropion which seem to have the highest rate of seizures associated with it. Indeed, yes. Okay, thank you very much. And finally, our case report. Um, we had an unusual one last month. This is equally unusual. What's this about? So yes, this, this had me actually, this had me running to my BNF, but I'll not for the obvious reason. But this is a case of an 11-month-old child admitted to any in status epilepticus. Uh, and it transpired that the cause of this was that um, the child was having their nappy rash treated with lidocaine cream, which a I would never have I've never imagined anyone would use lidocaine cream to treat nappy rash, but also I hadn't clocked. I'm honest with you that um, there was a risk of epilepsy or an epileptic or seizure with lidocaine cream. So, looking at the BNF regarding Emla cream, because I for one very often offer this to children who are going to have blood tests. And I usually suggest they 
you know, put it on quite thickly over their, their elbows and go off down to the hospital to have a blood test. And I began to think, you know, how close am I to perhaps causing some significant side effects from using this drug in this way? The good news is having looked at the SPCs and um, the BNF, actually, with regard to anyone over one year old, you'd need to use at least two tubes of Emla cream before you would get close to any sort of dose that might have an impact on the child. And I think what wasn't clear from reading the report was a where or how had the lidocaine, was it prescribed or did they just have it lying around and thought they'd try it? It wasn't clear what the source of, of why they'd started using the lidocaine cream was. But what was interesting was that the, the child's blood level was almost twice the upper limit of normal um, for, for lidocaine. So whether it was the fact that they'd, it had been plastered on very liberally and then under an occlusive nappy, so and close to mucous membranes where you've got a increased absorption, or what isn't clear. So I think your, your EMLA patients are probably reasonably safe. Oh, yes, I, mean, I was very reassured, but it's one of those things where you think, my goodness, I've never even thought about that. And the SPC for EMLA does actually point out that absorption through genital skin is far higher than anywhere else. Uh, and actually they, they suggest it should never be used in children under 12 years of age in that area. So I think um, there is good evidence that it is, it is ex exceptionally easily absorbed from the genital skin. And again, I, I had a quick look at see what products are available because obviously there is Emla, but there is also a 4% lidocaine cream available in the UK, which is, I think, mainly licensed for topical use before painful procedures. So a bit like, I guess, Emla. Uh, and it's uh, SPC says that overdose is unlikely, but I guess it doesn't factor in that if you whack it on under a nappy, you may well get lots of it absorbed. So um, interesting case. Yes, and I think it's it's like everything, you know. I, I I think there was there was a line in the case report about how this child had been seen multiple times. I think both by their GP and in any &E, about the nappy rash, and I think just adding in another unlicensed treatment is not the way to go in these situations. Good, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtb.bmj.com. And if you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving us a rating or a comment on the iTunes site. We would love to hear from you. You can find a link to the DTP podcast page on the notes that accompany this podcast. Thank you for listening to us, and we hope that you'll be able to join us for October's podcast. Bye.